Welcome to audio from Ballyhalbert Gospel Hall. Listen in as we open God's Word and share how it should impact our lives. We hope it blesses you. You know the Cana principle? Cana principle is, you know, normally you keep the best wine at the start, but in the Cana principle you keep it to the end. Well, I'm going to have to disappoint you this afternoon. <laughs> That's not the way it's going to be. And if you missed the first three recordings, um, where um, Drew and Keith and Aaron dealt with the first three chapters, uh, that, that was where the good wine was. So uh, if you've missed that and you're coming in maybe in this recording in chapter four with me, please don't miss out on, on the first three. They were, they were a tremendous benefit. So... Um, we're going to read chapter 4. The amazing thing about Jonah is this tiny little book. It's about 300, depending on your translation, it's got 329, 342, 339, whatever words in it. It only takes nine minutes to read through from chapter 1 right through to chapter 4. It's not very long. And yet, um, when it, the more you look at it, like it's always like God's word, the more you look at it, the deeper it gets and the deeper it gets. I seem to have spent the last two months of my life immersed in Jonah. Uh, I've told you before, I was down in, in Avoca there in April with uh, a group of young people, and we were looking at Jonah there for five talks. Um, but I love this book. There, there's so much about it that is so relevant to us today. So we'll just read chapter four, and uh, we'll pray first that God will just bless us. Father, we just thank you for your word, for the power that you have invested in it to challenge the every corner of the human heart. We thank you, Lord. It's the way that you speak of your character to us. It's how you warn us and treat us, challenge us, encourage us, build us up. Lord, we just thank you for your word. And I just pray that as we read it together here this afternoon in Ballyhalbert, and as we try to unpack what you're saying to us, that Lord, what we will hear will not be the, the, the words and the the language is just a member of this fellowship, but rather, Lord, we will truly hear what you are speaking to every single one of us, and the speaker included. So these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonah chapter 4. <clears throat> but Jonah was, in fact, we need to come in at the end of chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them destruction, the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh God, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah 
was very happy about the vine. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Well, we had looked running from God's will and then in our second week we thought about submitting to God's will, fulfilling God's will and this afternoon we're going to be thinking about questioning God's will. Now I just want to say there's folks away, um, it's a bank holiday Monday and that's nice and I hope if they're listening to the recording I hope you have a lovely weekend and God really bless in your rest away. Also we're privileged to see Glenn here who has made it from the salt weekend. So we'll be waiting to see. If he falls asleep, just give him a poke there, Esther. <laughs> so, and it was lovely to come here on Friday night and see the bit of a buzz as those young people went off down to Castle Ward. It's, uh, you know, it is a tremendous privilege to be in a church or an assembly where there's young people buzzing about. It, it's always a very bad mark when you don't have young people uh, in and around or people willing to work with young people. So pray for that. Uh, if it's not your thing, pray for that. Anyway, back to Jonah chapter 4. This, this, the book itself, you'll notice, is pretty much perfectly balanced into four chapters. Um, and throughout those four chapters, there's always these couplets going on. I don't know if you've noticed it or not. There's all these different couplets that keep appearing. So you've, I'm sure you've picked up on some of them. And maybe there's ones I'll say that, that you've seen that I haven't. There's two journeys. There's one where Jonah sets up to Tarshish and, and human, his own human strength. And then there's the one off to um, Nineveh, which is totally provided and the work of God. Then there's two calls to obedience. You remember one, the first time Jonah rejects it, and the second time he accepts it. There's two natural events of weather used by God. There's the great tempest, and then there's the scorching east wind that we just read about. There's two creatures in the, in the book of Jonah that God uses, and they are very different in size. You have this great fish that God uses and then this tiny little worm. He is the God of all creation. And then there's these two prayers that are made, you know. right? So you've got this prayer within the great fish that Jonah makes. But I, with a vow of thanksgiving, or uh, I, with a song of thanksgiving, will make my vows unto the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Jonah says. And then there's this second prayer. Both of the prayers, you'll notice, are initiated by extreme events. One uh, being in the bottom of the ocean inside a whale. And the second one is, so one is the threat of personal death and the other one is the removal of a mass threat of death to a people in, in Nineveh. Then there's two questions that God asks to Jonah about his angry. Have you a right to be angry? 
Jonah doesn't even answer that one. Have you a right to be angry about the vine? And then there's two people challenged in, in this book um, about their attitudes. And one of them is Jonah, and the other one, well, we'll come to who that is towards the very end. The character of Jonah is revealed right throughout this book. We see so many wee uh, little things about the character of Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 3, we find out about his rebellious nature. That's part of his character. We see that he's self-sufficient. Remember, he pays his own way. He makes his own way. He makes his own plans to go to Joppa. So he's obviously a sort of a self-sufficient sort of a person. That's part of his nature. He's also very self-assured. Because imagine going down into this boat in the middle of the storm, and yet he doesn't have any sort of self-second-guess. He just goes to sleep. He's not sitting there racked with self-doubt. So he seems quite a self-assured gentleman. He's uh, also very frank and uh, direct and honest whenever they ask him on the ship. You know, all these, I think it's seven questions they ask him. He's pretty straight and he tells them, well, I'm a, I'm a Hebrew and I worship. And he's just very straight. And uh, he's also very fatalistic. He says, you know, to, to solve this problem, you need to just throw me into the sea. And he's very committed in that sort of sense. He's a very sort of, you know, single maiden kind of individual in many ways. He's um, capable also of evaluating his own mistakes. And we see that in chapter 2. And he is prepared to obey God, albeit after a bit of a struggle. And he is prepared also, like Jacob, to wrestle with God over his faith. To not just stand back and be, you know, making mild and whatever, you know. He, he is someone who's prepared when he sees things that are challenging to challenge God about it. And he also has a dramatic and explosive nature. Y you can't help but notice there's some very wide, oh, there's some more of the salt leaders coming. Nice to see you. Come on in, get a seat. And you know what? It's lovely to see you as well here, Hannah, all the way here. God bless you. Um, and so he has this explosive nature and prone to these m wild mood swings, doesn't he? Yeah, you know, yes, I am angry enough to die. <laughs> you know, just get this character. He's probably a very uncomfortable person to have as a friend, I would think, in many ways. But ultimately, what I would say is this. Jonah is an imperfect man. And with such people, God chooses to work. He's an imperfect man because God works with imperfect people now on that there's a grave delusion that can sometimes creep into our thinking let me describe it and, and maybe you recognize this i do and, and so maybe you recognize this so having been made right with faith with faith through jesus christ sometimes there's a delusion where we become to think that we are god's gift of perfection to the church along with that self centered assumption that we are almost never wrong and that everyone else is never quite right the result of that self righteous syndrome lays the ground for countless countless controversies within the christian church and it is seen in many places soon you have tensions brewing simmering and then boiling whenever believers find themselves at odds with one another over usually the most inane mat matters it's never the divinity of Christ or the virgin birth or the resurrection or the creation of the world. It's never those things. It's always little things that come um, 
Egos get bruised, voices become raised, precious dogmas that people just will not let go of because this is my dogma. Uh, they're protected with a zeal and a fervor that's vainly imagined in our own hearts as a sign of our own spiritual growth. And we need to be careful of that kind of thinking because we are imperfect people and we are not going to be perfect in our thinking this side of eternity. And over these arguments, over this, this idea of this self-righteousness that we can sometimes have it's always petty ground that is fought over it's like the first world war those few meters of soil in the advanced deceitful woods or verdun or the somme and at the end of it all thousands of young men lay dead in their own blood in the trenches to fight over two or three meters of dirt and soil that at the end of it all nobody even cares about and sometimes we need to be careful about those things that animate us lest we don't recognize that they're actually being generated by our own flesh rather than a real understanding of who God is and what his direction is in our life. Small issues can dominate this earthly position, elevating minor details of almost no value to destroying relationships. And sometimes, and I've seen this, whole church fellowships over the most inane of things. I could go through a list of different things I can think of and I thought that would not be helpful. It's understood that we just need to be careful of those things. Some people would rather be right than be Christ-like. And I need to warn myself that. We need to, we need to get the vision. What I'm saying here is Jonah is an imperfect person and it's clear that he's lost his vision. Because the amazing reality is this, that God does have a perfect plan, but he continues to use imperfect people like you and I to carry it out. Now, if I was asked to choose a man to go to Nineveh to tell these Ninevites about what God's judgment was for them and what their possible salvation was, I could think of a few people I would choose in Scripture. Maybe Jonathan, I think he's an admirable person in Scripture. Barnabas. You know, you, you know, um, Martha, maybe. I don't know. As you start to think through Ruth, as you start to think through people in Scripture, you think of people you might maybe pick. I think possibly the last person I might have picked was this screaming prophet who gets all humpy and his mood swings all over the place. But then think about the disciples. If Forget what you know. You've been told that God is going to send his own son here, but he needs a group of people to help him. Why, maybe we'd pick somebody, maybe somebody in the Sanhedrin, somebody of a bit of power and influence. Somebody political would be good. Um, who's that boy, the procurator? What do you call Mr. Sharp? Pontius Pilate. I might have picked him. I certainly wouldn't have picked somebody who's going to deny him. Somebody who's not going to believe that he ever was resurrected. I wouldn't have picked the 12 disciples. But that's how God works. God chooses imperfect people, the 12 disciples, Jonah, to carry out. Because here's, uh, here's something I just want to put up. God does not choose us or love us because of who we are and what we have done. He loves us despite who we are and what we have done. He does not choose us because 
of who we are and what we've done. He loves us despite who we are and what we've done. As a human being, I will always remain imperfect. I will always disappoint every, every single one of you here. I will disappoint you. I'll say stupid things. I'll do silly things. Um, I will disappoint you. And you will disappoint me. And that's the nature of being an imperfect person in an imperfect world, but where God has called us. And this is where understanding God's will comes into play. Understanding who God is. You see, understanding for myself, and think this for yourself, if we can continue to understand that we are sinners saved by grace, and sinners saved by grace, still with the old battle going within us, it keeps things in proper perspective. I am imperfect, and with due respect, so are you. But our mutual imperfection that we share together is a truth that you and I should always keep in mind, always keep in mind. Keep in mind that I am, I am imperfect and I will keep in mind that you're imperfect. And, and God understands us. He understands that very well. That's why God's word tells us to forbear with one another. Very, so many times we're told to esteem one another, better on ourselves, to, to forbear with one another. Colossians chapter 3, let me just read it, says this. We could have put it up on the screen there if I can. Could you just click that for me? Thank you. Bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. But anyway, in chapter 4, it's very evident that Jonah displays another of his characteristics and it is this it is anger and frustration with God having made a, a prayer in chapter 2 of contrition and repentance God now reacts to God's grace in a display of anger when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to act and run off to Tarshish, because I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah, it's almost, it's almost funny that he says this to God. And anger... He uses the virtue of the character of God as some kind of stick that he thinks he can wield against God. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. It seems so strange, doesn't it? But what, one thing we can say about Jonah is here that, well, Jonah knows his Bible. <laughs> He's quoting Exodus chapter 34 when Moses came down the second time to the mountain with the second set of tablets of stone and, and God tells him that he is a God who is gracious who is compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. These are the very words that Jonah is quoting back to God. There's no doubt about this. Jonah knows his Bible but listen listen now knowing the word of God does not always mean 
that we know the God of the world. It's easy, you know, to, ha to know the historical narrative and the background of the, of the scriptures and the gospels. It's, it, we could memorize huge chunks of scripture. We can know the context of Leviticus with Hebrews. We can understand where Genesis fits in to John. We can, we, can, we can know the scripture. We can know the parallels, know how to make contrasts, know how to apply it, know the word, and possibly miss knowing the God of the world. Paul would warn us of that. He would say, knowledge puffs up. And so, so Jesus brings a little child. As he's teaching, he brings a little child and he sets the little child on his knee. He says, unless you become like little children, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. This childlike faith is of greater value than all the knowledge we can amass. Now, don't make the mistake of saying that I'm just saying you don't need to know. That you, that's how God makes himself known to us through his word. That's how he speaks to us. That's how he challenges us. That's how he directs us. That's how we make decisions in life based on the principles of what God is saying to us in his word. He doesn't give us you know, flashes in the skies or he speaks to us primarily through his word and if anything, if anything contradicts that, then it's wrong. But at the same time, Jonah, well, you saw his problem. The sad truth is, like Jonah, that while God is always swift to forgive, God is always swift to forgive, always, we are quite often the ones who are quick to judge and it's because of that that God, that Jesus gives the very story of the what we call the Good Samaritan. Let me just read it to you, the preamble before the story. So in Luke chapter 10, on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, "And who is my neighbor? He got this picture of someone thinks he's sort of sparring with Jesus a little bit, you know, providing a bit of scripture showing that, you know, he's really on the right grounds here. But he just wants to hear Jesus say that he is, but he doesn't get quite the answer that he's looking for. So he tosses it, well, and who is my neighbor? You know, and it's easy for us to return affection to friends. We are our friends. We are friends together. And it's easy that we love one another because we are friends. We've grown up. We've seen our children grow up. We have buried our parents we've done so many things together as a fellowship and we love one another and it's easy to love your family you brought them into the world with pain and anguish you better love them but it's easy to love friends and family but Jesus here in this story and in the telling to this man and to others listening totally redefined what loving your neighbor meant He brings in a Samaritan, and we, we know that these were an anathema to Jews. I'm not going to the whole background of where the Samaritans came from, 
but it's enough to say that it's not very dissimilar to the way that Jonah would have thought about the Ninevites. And Jesus tells this story to this man and says, your neighbor is your enemy. And you see, this is what Jonah is missing. That God is sending Jonah to the Ninevites, who are Jonah's enemy, but the message that's behind all this is that God is a God of love who loves those enemies. And we are to follow the pattern that God has given us. Well, I suppose the question is this, who is your Ninevite? And who is your Samaritan? And we all have Ninevites, and we all have Samaritans. You know, sometimes we pick out particular ones and ignore others. It's okay to, that's the beat, right? So if we were to read, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. And we're going, yeah, I found one of my Ninevites there, all right. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. There's my Samaritan. Yes, that's it. Nor thieves. Hmm, right? Not so bad. That's bad, but nor the greedy. Nor drunkards, nor slanderers. So you're never greedy, you're never a slanderer. Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is what Paul wrote by the Spirit of God to these Corinthian believers. He said, Look, none of these people are not, you know, even the greedy and you know, any kind of none of they're all an enemy of God, every one of them. And then he says, and that is what some of you were. <laughs> Corinth was a horrendous place. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Somewhere, somebody out there told these Corinthians who would have been Samaritans to them, who would have been Ninevites to them, somebody drew alongside them and told them about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. Somebody told those Corinthians that God loved them, that there was forgiveness for them. Someone saw beyond the Ninevite, someone saw beyond the Samaritan, and such were some of you and the extent of just what grace is can only be understood when we see it in the context of grace despite the judgment it's deserved we can only tell people what forgiveness is when they know what it means you tell someone, you know, God loves you and you're forgiven. Well, that's great. But the question might be, what do I need forgiven from? It's a bit like rescuing somebody from a burning building. They're really not going to appreciate it if they don't know the building's burning. If you run into somebody's house down Main Street in Valley Halbert and drag them out through the front door, I don't think they're going to enjoy that. They'll not think you're a super-duper person if you just go in and are busy watching something on television. You grab them by the whatever their shoulders and pull them out. 
It's only whenever they come out and see that the roof's caving in and fire coming out that they'll begin to appreciate that what you did for them was a tremendous act of courage and grace. And so this knowledge that as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with love, it's also with a warning. Forgiveness. Forgiveness from what? That we're all under the judgment of God. That we were all enemies. We are all Ninevites. We are all Samaritans. And so I can't be like Jonah and point at them and say that they're the bad ones because I'm one of them. Jonah, you see, had missed the indescribable dimension of the width, the height, the breadth, the depth of God's grace. Jonah's heart, Jonathan Swift wrote a satirical poem meant to make fun of holier-than-thou people. Let me read you a line of it. We are God's chosen few, all others will be damned. There is no place in heaven for you. We can't have heaven crammed. It was a satirical play, but it was actually a pretty close description of the state of where Jonah's heart is here in chapter 4. And understanding grace is only possible when we fully understand that we ourselves are absolute debtors to it. I don't know if you know the program from um, Great Lives. No, not Great Lives. Last Word on Radio 4 sometimes. Yeah. And at the end of the week or sometimes during the week, sometimes there's a guy and he comes on and he'll recite four or five people who have died during the week or during the month. And there'll be a wee bit of an, an epitaph to their life. But one of them last week I happened to notice was a psychologist, an Australian psychologist called Dorothy Rowe. Did you hear that? Yeah. Very interesting. And she uh, was supposed to help people with depression, but her big uh, bugbear in life was religion. She said religion was a terrible thing. It was a curse of a thing. She really didn't like it. She taught that religion was harmful to people because it taught them to feel guilty or bad about themselves. She taught there was nothing in life to feel bad about at all. We're bad about at all. We are just in an unpredictable universe. Just get on with it. And that was basically her message. You know, there's no, don't feel bad about yourself. There's nothing to feel bad about. That's the way life is. Get on with it. And people felt, ah, oh, that's great. It's a bit like a radar operator, you know, sitting in the Kent coast in the Second World War. And this wonderful new thing of radar now starts to show all these blips of Junkers and German bombers coming in, hordes of them that are going to bomb south, southern England. And the radar, radar, radar operator thinking to himself, you know what? It's a lovely, hazy summer day, and people are out having picnics, and this would really disturb their day. <laughs> Why would I? spoil a perfectly lover, lovely summer's day and put people and unsettle them and put them at ease. I'll not pass that message on. Reality is our hearts are battlefields for all kinds of vice. And in the radar screen there are lots of blips for the imperfections in our lives. Once we begin to believe the lie that we're not so bad at all, after all, then we begin to open the doors to the toxic idea that grace, maybe after all, <coughs> is something we deserve. It's our right. It's just the others who don't. And that's where Jonah was. Comfortable in his own skin. I'm a prophet of God, but you know what? Those people over there, they need judged. People who understand, we're coming towards our end, people who understand grace, 
would be to God that I would. People who understand grace find it easier to forgive others and easier to pass that on. Do you agree with me? If you understand grace, if you really get it, that you are an absolute debtor to grace, that you, you're not forgiven because you deserve it, that you're not a believer in Jesus Christ and a hope of heaven because you were better than somebody else. But Jonah, those enemies that I want you to go and speak to, the enemies, ultimately they're my enemies, and Jonah, ultimately you're my enemy. We were all enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. But out of the depth and the height and the width and the splendor of his grace, he reached down, he sought us, and he bought us. And he said, you're mine. And he holds us in his shepherd's hand. And none of that grip and none of that love and none of that grace is deserved. And it's only when we grasp that that we find it possible to forgive others. Understanding God means submitting to his will. Like a spoiled child, you saw it there. But God said to Jonah in verse 9, Have you a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. And you can just see him shaking his wee fists. Like a spoiled child, Jonah tells God to take away the gift of life that God has given him. I don't want it, he sobs petulantly. But look at God's immense patience. This is the second time God said, he says, are you right to be angry? Now he says this. This is after the vine has died. Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? (laughs) About this plant. You didn't make it grow. You did nothing to do with it. You you didn't water it. You didn't design the structure of the seed. You had nothing to do with you, Jonah, and your cross. Have you any right? be angry about it. Understanding God means understanding that I may not understand. Understanding God comes with the understanding that I may not understand. But I do understand this. God is sovereign. And he can be trusted and he can be followed even in those times of my life when I can't see the step in front of me. That even in those times I understand that God is right and worthy to be followed. So we have finally then the object lesson of the vine. So an immense patience, and you all you see through this is God's patience. God now completes his final two acts of preparation in Jonah's life lesson. And it's in chapter 4, verse 6. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. Well, there's a once. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. Look at the things throughout 
Jonah that God provided. Five things. He provided, first of all, the great tempest that came. He provided the great fish. He provided the vine. He provided the scorching east wind. And he provided the worm. And the story behind all this is, is that despite the rebellion, despite the anger, despite the disobedience and the whole brokenness of the sailors, of Jonah, of the Ninevites. Everyone seems broken in this story. But despite all that, God is sovereign. Despite all that, God has prepared. And in the final analysis, all things come from him and are sovereign to him. Of course, Jonah is so caught up with himself, well, that he has become the centre of his own universe. There's a, I like D.H. Lawrence, the poet, not the person, he's a bit of a rare character, but some of his poetry, it doesn't really rhyme much, so I don't need to remember it, but um, let me read you one called Intimates, and it's the story of a man and a woman, and they're having an argument. Don't you care for my love? She said bitterly. I handed her the mirror, and said, please address these questions to the proper person. Please make all requests to headquarters. In all matters of emotional importance, please approach the supreme authority direct. So I handed her the mirror. And she would have broken it over my head, but she caught sight of her own reflection, and that held her spellbound for two seconds while I fled. Jonah, in his own fascination of himself in the mirror, he's taken up with himself, but he has failed to see that the, in the end, God's preoccupation is with the object and the pinnacle of his universe, and that is the value and the worth of the human soul. You remember that Jesus told us warned us, what should it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? Or what should a man give in exchange for his soul? And of course, the unwritten answer is this, nothing. There's nothing of more value. God has made us eternal beings, made in his own image, created the pinnacle of his creation, whose divinely appointed privilege is to come to know him, to worship him and enjoy him and that is also to be the privilege of those wicked people living in Nineveh. I said that this book at the very start and here we finish was a book of couplets and we went through some of those. The two prayers, the two creatures, almost two different things. And I said as well that it was about two characters really and two attitudes One clearly is Jonah and his attitudes. And the other, of course, and you'll have guessed this perhaps by now, is yourself. And it's myself. It's ourselves. It's me. Because the book of Jonah holds a mirror up to the person who reads it. Because in Jonah, see, we see the very worst parts of our own character magnified. And that should generate within our own hearts love and gratitude that God should love his enemies because I was one.
his enemy. And the attitude that God had towards the sailors, the attitude that, that Jonah missed, that God had towards the Ninevites, that Jonah missed, is the attitude of God towards those who are his enemies. Let me read it again. That he is a gracious, gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this word that we've been able to enjoy through May. We thank you for your word that speaks so clearly to our hearts. We are such debtors to grace. Forgive us if we have got Jonah hearts at times where we are frustrated. We want judgment to fall upon the earth and just wipe it all out, forgetting that that would have been us had times been different. But Lord, you love the world of sinners lost and ruined by the fall. But Lord, your love and compassion and forgiveness cannot be measured. And Father, we know too that it's measured against the judgment that we surely deserve, each one of us. And so, Father, we just pray that as forgiven people, help us to have soft hearts to with this wonderful grace with which we've been saved, to somehow love those Ninevites, love those Samaritans, to have a heart of forgiveness for those who so deeply need it. Help us to love one another. Help us to grow in grace, understanding and forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, folks. God bless.